Before we get started, I just have one announcement. Uh, we're currently running a summer sale through July 14th. So everything in our online store, including our recent webinars and all audio and video downloads, are 20% off for the next two weeks. Um, so if you have something you've been thinking about getting or uh, something like that, you, now is the time. Um, this particular episode is going to be another one of Robert Moore's lectures, and I just want to mention that we recently uploaded a few more um, of his archives that had not been cataloged. You can check out those on the store page under New Editions. Also, this episode is going to be part of the series The King Within, part of a larger compilation, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. That would be a great thing to get 20% off of because it's also a, a pretty significant discount on all of the uh, individual sets themselves. Okay, that's it. Thanks. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The King Within with Robert Moore, Ph.D. This episode is the first session of the series, The King Within, a classic seminar on a series on the four major archetypes of masculine psychology as he understood them. The King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. From the seminar description, of the four male archetypes described by Robert Moore, king, warrior, magician, and lover, the king is the central archetype in the mature masculine psyche. Without disidentification from this archetype, and without a dynamic connection to it, a man will be immobilized by grandiosity, lost in depression, and bereft of a sense of meaning, just order, and connection with the creative springs of the psyche. The course is divided into the following four topics the sacred king in myth, folklore, and religion, the role of the king in masculine selfhood, psychopathology and the king, healing the king, resources from analysis, ritual, and human spirituality. It was recorded in 1989. Robert Moore, PhD, was a distinguished professor of psychology, psychoanalysis, and spirituality in the Graduate Center of the Chicago Theological Seminary where he was the founding director of the New Institute for Advanced Studies in Spirituality and Wellness, an internationally recognized psychoanalyst and consultant in private practice in Chicago. He served as a training analyst at the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago and was director of research for the Institute for Integrative Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and the Chicago Center for Integrative Psychotherapy. Author and editor of numerous books in psychology and spirituality, he lectured internationally on his formulation of a neo-Jungian psychoanalysis and integrative psychotherapy. Before I get to the seminar, I want to share another submission from one of our listeners. Steve from Australia says, I'm a bit lost on my journey at the present, but hoping podcasts like this may help shed some light on the path ahead. 
I am a psychiatric nurse and have worked in an acute community setting for about 25 years. I find Jungian psychology to be useful in both my personal life and in my workplace. An anonymous listener from Ireland says, I heard Jung's near-death experience on Sam Reed's NDEs, now called decoding death, soon after my grandma died, and I became really interested in Jung. I've always known he was more spiritual than traditional schools of psychology. His near-death experience blew me away. It was so scientific and poetic at the same time. It's so hard to describe the feeling I got from listening to it. I've heard some scientists talk about how they are deeply convinced God is in math, not like intelligent design though. They talk in a more spiritual sense of God, not the Christian convention, like the perfection in math, the absoluteness. That's how I feel when Jung describes a lot of things, like dreams and the subconscious. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like poetry, but psychology at the same time. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's great. If you would uh, like to share a little bit about yourself on the podcast, please just click the link in the description um, and I'll, I'll read it on the podcast like this one. Okay, so here's the lecture. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this this is an ongoing work. Let me just say a little bit about my work for those of you that are not familiar with it. Uh, I'm a Jungian analyst in private practice here in Chicago and Evanston. Uh, and I teach in the interface between psychology uh, and religion and mythology. And uh, I have been working for some time on masculine psychology uh, and let me just say briefly uh, how I how I came into working on that. Uh, I didn't really start out to to write five books in masculine psychology. Uh, I really was doing some psychological studies of the occult, trying to do some work on psychology of occultism because of uh, people, some of my analysands that I was working with had been involved in the occult. So when I got into that, I started studying uh, the archetype of initiation and the magician. And when I got into that, I started realizing that I had to, to understand the way that related uh, to uh, the archetype of the king, because during that I got involved in John Perry's work. And you all should try to get this book and read it. You should try to get all of John Perry's books. His, uh, the, one that, uh, the one that's really important that's not in print now is the, uh, is the uh, Lord of the Four Quarters, uh, Myths of the Royal Father, which I'm trying, I've been in touch with John, and I'm trying to reprint that book in my Paulist Press series on Jung and Spirituality so it'll be available to people to look at. But uh, this one, Self and Psychotic Process, his book, uh, Roots of Renewal and Myth and Madness, and his latest book called The Heart of History. All of them turn on the, uh, uh, his discoveries about the king, the way the, the king archetype appears in the psyche, particularly during healing times. That really intrigued me. This was some 15 years ago. That really intrigued me. So I began to realize if I was going to understand the magician, I was going to have to understand the way that related to the king. And then as I worked on those things and began to become more and more aware of recurrent patterns that appeared in the psyche, 
I began to see the way in which the warrior in the form of knights and so forth kept coming up in the same context. And uh, gradually I began to realize that that uh, four archetypes really formed the key structure of a mature masculine psyche. Began, began to dawn on me that there was far more structure than I had been taught about the psyche. And I'm going to lay that out for you briefly. But in, uh, in my work, my work over the last 15 years has been trying to deepen, elaborate, clarify a lot of these deep structures in the psyche, both the masculine psyche and the feminine psyche. And, and in effect, it has been a kind of a mapping of the psyche. So one of the things that I want to do tonight is to locate for you where you would place the king and the queen. I'm not going to lecture on the queen, but much of what I say about the king in the male psyche functions uh, in the female psyche uh, in a parallel way with the queen. Uh, so anyway, much of my work has been mapping inner space so that we can see the way this thing is laid out, so that we can see that contrary to the fantasies of the Freudians, particularly recent Freudians, uh, the psyche is far more structured and the unconscious is not at all as chaotic as they would like to think. It's far more structured than they believe. And uh, uh, you can discern, learn to discern the structure. You can learn to recognize what space in the psyche you tend to occupy more of the time. And you can get senses about what parts of the psyche you're locked out of most of the time. And you can get some sense about, uh, by looking at that, uh, you can do some practical diagnostics on yourself and you can learn ways to work on those areas where you're weakest. Uh, that's really what my work has been about in the last 15 years and it's finally uh, coming to some fruition. Uh, I'm very indebted to the Guarnicellis, uh, to Maria particularly, who through Robert Bly got onto this work and uh, uh, Moral Press will be bringing out a four-volume set on these, the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, an introductory volume to this work will come out uh, probably about a year from now with Harper and Rowe. Uh, has yet to be finally titled, but all these things are in press. This is the first rough draft of the the volume on the king, which we're going to be delving into uh, uh, in this in these coming weeks. Uh, my co-author for this work is a mythologist in the tradition of uh, Joseph Campbell, Douglas Gillette, who some of you may know. Uh, he's helped me elaborate the, the deep cultural and folklore roots of all this sort of thing. Uh, but let me, uh, let me just jump in 
and uh, as quickly as possible, uh, I want to do the introductory stuff, uh, have some questions, and then we'll take a very short break. We'll come back and get into the, the way in which the sac Sacral King presents in folklore and so forth. So without any uh, further introduction, let me just start out. It's extremely important to get a sense about the radical difference between Jung's psychology and other psychologies, and including other psychoanalytic psychologies. Jung's psychology is the only psychology which really emphasizes the importance of deep structures. Now, if you're a historian, if you study the history of psychoanalysis, this is very interesting kind of thing. Because Freud himself, and particularly the early Freudians, were more interested in the, what, what we would call today deep structures, the archaic structures of the psyche, than contemporary Freudians are. In other words, if you go back and you study Freud's work and a lot of his early colleagues, you'll find a lot more interest in what we would call archetypes. For example, <clears throat> Freud's work on uh, totem and taboo, his work on Moses and monotheism, his whole rap about the importance of the, the universality of the Oedipal complex, that stuff parallels Jung's interest in the collective unconscious. In fact, you can think about Freud's affirmation of the universal importance of the Oedipal conflict as a form of thinking about a collective unconscious. There are places in Freud's work where he admits as much. Uh, uh, I also think of Otto Rank's work. You may have seen his book, The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. If you haven't seen Rank's book, Otto Rank's book on the hero, you should get that and read that because that's an early Freudian treatment of these kinds of structures in the psyche. And there are many others. But with the development of psychoanalysis, particularly in America, it got more and more oriented toward what we call today ego psychology. And they got less and less interested in, quote, archaic structures of the psyche. Uh, this has been changing a little bit. Uh, for those of you that are not interested in the history of psychoanalysis rap, we'll get off of this in a minute. But I know some of you are. Uh, in recent psychoanalytic theory, there's getting more interest in the deep structures again. All of this stuff, we talk about it as object relations theory, uh, contemporary psychoanalytic self-psychology. They are getting more interested once again in looking at the structures that exist in the psyche that are not ego, that are not the structures of the ego. But that, that, still, uh, uh, that still has not anything like the same emphasis as Jung's psychology of the archetypes. I want to make a distinction. Some of you may, be, you may have heard a lot about archetypal psychology, Hillman's psychology. Uh, uh, Hillman is a brilliant man. Uh, I often say of James Hillman, he is the most brilliant Adlerian psychologist that I know. <coughs> Uh, because his attitude toward the unconscious is one which de-emphasizes now 
deep structures. In a very important way, uh, it's important to understand that archetypal psychology is not a psychology of the archetypes. Uh, Jung's psychology was a psychology of archetypes. And that is, if you want to look at uh, uh, the Collected Works, Volume 9, Part 1, on the archetypes and the collective unconscious, you'll see Jung working on particular deep structures in the psyche. Uh, and uh, I would recommend that you look at that volume to get a sense of the way Jung approached this type of thing. Uh, Jung emphasized that the human psyche below the personal unconscious level was formed with these deep structures which we do call archetypes. If you have never studied that, I recommend the books of Anthony Stevens, uh, particularly Stevens' book, uh, Archetypes, A Natural History of the Self. I think that's what he calls it. Archetypes, A Natural History of the Self. <clears throat> the term, the objective psyche, is a good thing to try to get your mind around to get a feel for Jung's view. For Jung, the unconscious was something which was objective. It had structures that were not created by your ego. In other words, if you really got to studying the psyche, you would be studying uh, patterns and structures and entities which were not created by your ego, which didn't come out of your personal experience, which were inborn, which were innate potentials in your psyche, and which manifest themselves in some way in your psychological functioning. So one of the things we'll be looking at in a very uh, sustained way in these four weeks is at one structure that manifests itself in the human psyche and we will be looking at the way in which it has appeared in culture, and we'll be looking at its instinctual potentials, what potentials it represents for the, for the masculine psyche, what qualities, what values, what, what functional abilities it exists to generate in, in the psyche. We will be looking at ways in which that goes wrong, particularly in male personality. Uh, we, in other words, we'll be looking at a psychopathology of the king uh, in its, in its uh, uh, expressions. We will be looking at ways to try to heal that. And that will be the way we'll be structuring our approach. So let me, let me now turn to try to locate for you the place in which the king appears in the psyche. <clears throat> there are, according to my understanding, there are four, and you can get these tapes, these tapes which I lay out, these, uh, these uh, four archetypes of masculinity. Uh, you will see, and I just... I'd like for us to think about these four spaces that emerge in the psyche. You can put the king, 
and the queen and the space that they generate here. We would call this cosmos or world. World as opposed to chaos, which is disorder or lack of structure. When you're talking about your ideas of father and mother, and you're, when you're talking about a father and mother complex, what you're talking about is the way in which these archetypal potentials have either uh, been uh, <coughs> present in a good enough way in your experience in the family or in a not good enough way. And if your experience is like mine and your friends are like mine, most of us feel that, that, that there are some real problems around our experience of these potentials in the family. The warrior couple, I laid all this stuff out in a, uh, in a uh, course on the four couples in the psyche recently. I think the tapes on that are available for you in a more elaborate, to, to show the, the implications of this in an elaborate way. And there is there are the warrior tapes which elaborate this business. But anyway, this space is a space of struggle. This is the world of the Mujahideen, uh, the, the Islamic Mujahideen, the person who, who struggles for God. This is the plane of spiritual warfare. This is, uh, you can call this Armageddon. Uh, there's always an experience of this that generates an enemy. And you can talk about the enemy being on this end and the, you can even say the male and female warrior, in a positive sense, are down here facing the enemy across the space. So whenever you get into that place where you feel like you're constantly struggling and fighting, that's the space you're in in the psyche. There are a lot of people that have trouble getting into this at all. They're very passive, they're usually very passive-aggressive, often sentimental. Uh, and there are people that are dominated by it. They tend to be very sadistic, they tend to be very aggressive, uh, uh, oral sadistic or sadistic in other ways. Uh, so so you can you can you can manifest this by its absence or its or its presence. The magus or magician priest and priestess, you would say. This is transformative space. This is the space of liturgy. This is the space of, uh, of initiation, initiatory process. If you've been on a vision quest, this was the kind of space that you were looking for. If you're in psychotherapy, or if you are a therapist, or a healer, a, a counselor in some way, you're trying to generate this kind of space which is carefully contained so that there can be death of what needs to die and rebirth of some 
new, more healthy order. So death and rebirth, this is what Victor Turner talks about in, uh, in his work on ritual process. <clears throat> this is an archetype of introspection. This is very introverted. If you're in a midlife crisis, this thing is probably getting constellated. Or if you're working with people who are in transition states, life transitions, or if you're working in spiritual direction, this is the, this is the space in which you tend to work in a lot. Uh, of course, the problem with this magician business, uh, if you're a therapist or a spiritual director or a clergy person, uh, you tend to be in this stuff compulsive. And you tend to be a little bit schizoid, and you tend to uh, be voyeuristic. It tends to be very difficult for people that are in that kind of space to pay sufficient attention to their own life and the other areas. Uh, of course, finally, the male and female lover. And of course, if you read Boland's work, you get into the, the discussion of Aphrodite uh, and, uh, and, of course, Eros, the, uh, the uh, male versions of this type of thing. The idea of this being you can look at individuals, a person with what we would call in Jungian psychology a healthy ego, a really healthy ego, or what you would call in self-psychology somebody with a cohesive self with a little s uh, is someone who can move from space to space as is appropriate and who has enough connection with these different potentials in the psyche that they can know when they need to be in that kind of mind and they're able to access it to get in there when they need that kind of energy, they can connect with that kind of energy. And when they need to get out of that kind of energy, they know how to get out of it. Uh, for example, uh, you know, back in the 60s, uh, there, were, there were a lot of people who felt that uh, uh, if you just put enough flowers in gun barrels, uh, you would humanize the world. Uh, some of my hippie friends used to call this uh, uh, fuck your way to world peace. Uh, it's that sort of uh, idea. And uh, a lot of them tried it. It didn't work too well. Uh, so in all of these things, what you do in terms of a diagnostic in this is you look at in any given individual and you try to get a sense of what spaces they tend compulsively to be in and what spaces they have a great deal of difficulty with. Usually individuals vary greatly on this. And the course that I did on couples, I talked about the difficulties that occur when you've got one partner in lover space and another partner in the warrior space. This happens a lot in couples. I, I often talk to men who have had their successful careers and now they're 50. 
and now they're ready for their wife really to be back into the lover now that the family has left home, now that the kids have left the nest. But the wife, after having been a very nurturant queen for this realm, has now discovered her warrior self. And she is now developing herself as a very powerful career person in some vocation, some career calling. And so there's a real struggle in the family uh, between the partners being interested in being in different spaces. And it's very difficult in that case for them ever to find time to be together uh, in the garden, uh, This the, the time where they're not doing anything, not caring for anybody else particularly, not building anything, not fighting, uh, but being together to enjoy each other. So you can get a little sense about a geography of the site in this way. What we're interested in is elaborating the specific purposes and potentials of this space. So what I want us to do uh, during our time together is to think about uh, the unique potentials and problems of the space of the uh, king in this case, and you can extrapolate a lot of this uh, to, to, to work with on the, on the side of the queen. Now, let me stop there and, uh, and let you ask me any questions before I go on into working with the king itself. Yes? You mentioned the word constellate. Yeah, that's a word Jungians often use, the word con. He's asking, what about the word constellate? That is to say, these patterns are patterns in the deep structures of the psyche, but they may not be patterns which are having much influence on your conscious approach to the world and to life. So, in other words, if your connection with the king is not constellated in such a way that your ego consciousness can be aware of it and draw on it, then you will not be able to manifest in a conscious way many of these uh, potentials uh, and energies that are, that are in the king. Or, for example, if you're trying to write a book and basically you're just really a lovely, nice guy and you just love everybody and you try to be kind to everybody and, and, and sweet to everybody and you're basically kind of living your life out of the lover, uh, it's going to be very hard for you to get enough of the warrior energy constellated so that your ego can access it, so that you can do what is necessary to write that first draft. And it's, uh, it, that's the kind of use of the word constellate. To constellate in this context is simply to, to make it accessible. Uh, it's not that it is not already a pattern in the psyche. It is there in the psyche as a pattern. But the problem with the human ego, as Jung understood, is that the ego is a very partial thing and it tends to split and it tends to be more organized around some structure, one structure than others or two structures than others. And so what we want to do is to look at the kind of, uh, of potential that this particular configuration uh, makes possible. Other comments or questions before we go? Yeah. The next question was inaudible, but Dr. Moore summarizes it before answering. Yeah, I don't think, I think it's going to be a long time. She, she's asking questions about the relationship between the traditional Jungian typology, you know, thinking type, feeling type, and so forth, to this.
I don't think there's a one-to-one -one relationship, and I think it's worth thinking about and reflecting on. Uh, but and for example, some seem some things seem clear. That is to say, the magician, the archetype of the magus, seems to be highly related to intuition, the intuition function. But it's also related to the thinking function. Mm. So it's not clear that it's simply the intuitive function to me. It, it's quite clear that it's also uh, related to the thinking function. I mean, Einstein is a good example of someone that's very into the archetype of the magician. Physicists are heavily you know, expressions of that. So the problem is that that's a very interesting research problem and one that one could research empirically, I assume. It would not be that hard, I think, to research a lot of these things empirically and do a study of typology in relationship to uh, dominant archetypal configuration. In fact, I think someone, uh, some of you who have a good background in research psychology, uh, uh, it would be quite easy, I think, to, to quantify some, some research uh, tools to, to study this stuff. I think it would be, uh, in fact, it would be very much in Jung's own tradition. Uh, to do just that. Uh, but the reason it's confusing is that that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's a frontier for empirical research, a question of the relationship between typology and this. It doesn't necessarily go. Other comments, question for you? Oh, yes. Thank you that while you're mentioning the female aspect of each of these four archetypes, and you're not suggesting that these are the four major ones that would be comments of female psychology. I think that what you do, see, what in my work, what I think that you have to do is to look at the germ in Jung's thought of the importance of the of the conjunctio, the mysterium conjunctionis, the, the the royal couple in alchemy. And Jung talked about that a lot. And if you look, it, there's a, a lot of indications that the archetypal self, with a capital S in Jung, clearly is imaged in the conjunctio. Marion Woodman sees that. I'm not the only one that, that's been arguing that. Marion Woodman sees that, has argued that clearly. Uh, it's quite clear that the archetypal self is a royal couple. See? Now what you've got to get clear about, it's one thing to say that the deep structure of the archetypal self, the psyche in its totality in terms of its human mature form, is the, is the conjunctio, the royal couple. And it's quite another thing to say, what is it that grounds the male ego? The male ego is patterned on the king side of that. You see? The female inner, uh, ego is patterned on the queen side of that in all of its ramifications. See, there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which the fullness of the king, the fullness of the queen, contains all these different functions in the psyche, in the deep structures of the psyche. When the psyche splits, it splits up into expressions of these different forms. I'll show you the way that works in a minute when I'm talking about the gods uh, and uh, the, the, primal royal, the primal king, for example, King David uh, in the Hebrew tradition. King David is the great lover. He's the great. He's the great uh, wise man. He's the great. Uh, he's the great warrior. Uh, all of these things are contained within the the power of a of a primal pre-modern king. Uh, so what we're doing is delineating uh, these different configurations that are held together in the archetypal self. Now, I think it's interesting 
that not any work to speak of has been done on the Queen. And I think that's one of the major research areas that need to be done in terms of uh, in deep structural work in feminine psychology. Uh, because I think that uh, I think that you can work with uh, uh, you can work this side of the conjunctio. That's not my purpose in this course. My purpose in this course is to focus on the male side of this. Uh, I will comment as we go, though, uh, about the importance, for example, of a man having some conscious relationship to the queen in his psyche. And th let me just say why. Because if you're a man and you don't have any conscious relationship to the queen in your psyche, you're going to project that on the women in your life, and it's going to exacerbate all of your edible problems and your relationships with human women are going to be bad. In other words, if you do not have a relationship to the queen within, you're going to see her in human women, and you're going to idealize them and hate them. So it's not that consciousness of the queen is not important for men. It's extremely important for men, but that's not what I'm trying to work on in this course. You follow that? And the same thing is true for women, and that's why it's very appropriate for women to study the the king within because women do have the king within and if women are not on good terms with the king within they will project that on men human men including father get that if you project that on father you will idealize him and hate him you get it because a human cannot carry these archetypal energies finally that's a rule People out here mediate this stuff, and we hope we mediate it as well as we can. And hopefully, that's what a mature person will try to do, to mediate and contain and embody almost like a priesthood of these qualities. But no human being is going to be able to carry these finally well enough for an adult male or female you see that can you see why that would be see, that's a fundamental assumption it's a fundamental union assumption that is to say you've got to make a distinction between the ego and the archetype you've got to understand that other persons cannot carry the power the numinous magical power of an archetype if you have trouble with that, there's a book that really lays this out. Edward Edinger's book called Ego and Archetype. Uh, it is a tremendously helpful study of the importance of the connection and the disidentification between the ego and the archetype. Yes? E-D-I-N-G-E-R. Edward Edinger. He is one of the persons that understands, he's a classical Jungian. He is... He understands clearly about the difference between uh, the ego and the archetypal structures. And he understands the importance of forming a connection between the ego and those, and those centers of structure and energy. And in that book, Ego and Archetype, he lays that out. He's got many other important books, but that book is a classic, and it is, it is 
centrist Jungian. I mean, it has a it has a point of view which Jung would be able to accept. Jung himself, many of the contemporary writers, Jung, so-called Jungian writers, are not, in my view, really Jungian <clears throat> because they don't understand this business about the objective psyche very well. Uh, other comments or questions? Yes. My mm-hmm. question is the are you saying that the uh, anima carries for men carries the feminine aspects of all the art? Absolutely. No, no. You're, you're reading. You're reading that. See, the whole the, the 19th century Jung, the late 19th century Jung, the early 20th century one, when he was in that Victorian era, he had all sorts of uh, stereotypical ideas about what was feminine. Happily, thanks to Jean Bolin and other contemporary uh, writers, we know that women are not always passive and receptive. You see? We know now that that doesn't, when a woman is assertive and warlike, that doesn't make her masculine. That just means that she's in touch with her feminine warrior energy imaged in Athena. Uh, So what you're working with there is a subtle interpretation. That is to say, in the old days, the anima was understood more narrowly than we do today, than many of us do today. I think the feminine, let's put it this way, the feminine is full and the masculine is full. Uh, In my view, when a man is in his masculine lover, he's not more feminine. That doesn't mean he's feminine. It just means he's in touch with this particular archetypal potential in his psyche. It makes him real interested in the feminine. But it doesn't make him feminine. Uh, It just means that his narcissism, that is, when he's connecting with the archetypal lover in a conscious way, his narcissism is radically relativized. You can reverse this for a woman. And he is quite clear he is not complete in himself. The more narcissistic you are, the more you got this fantasy, well, I can be complete in myself. But when you get in contact with this archetypal lover and you're not possessed by it, if you're possessed by it, then you just want to lick everything around. You know, male, female, young, old, you know, inanimate, animate, live and dead. You just want to lick it all, put your tongue in, you know. Uh, but, uh, but that is not what we're talking about in terms of mature lover energy. When, when, the, when the human being is materially connected to the deep structures of the lover and his potential, it has, a, it has a sense. What the old Freudians, what the classical Freudians used to be, talk about is the capacity to, to value an object as being what it is in itself. There's all these fights among contemporary Freudians. I was just at a uh, self-psychology Freudian conference this week in San Francisco. And they're still trying to figure out, well now, are, are objects and self-objects the same thing, technical stuff in the literature? Well, you know, in other words, if I transcend my, my narcissism, uh, what does this do? Does this mean I no longer have what they call self-objects or what? You know, it's a technical argument. What it really means when you get past all the elephant shit, what it really means is <clears throat> when I really get mature, 
and I work on healing my narcissism, uh, does that mean what I'm loving is really uh, something other than me, or is it me? I mean, it's a big argument now in psychoanalysis. <laughs> my view is very close to Freud's old classical view. The more mature you get, the more you really appreciate reality. You have an appreciative consciousness. You can see it, and that's what turns you on. It's like William Blake's approach to reality. You know, the things glisten when you're in touch with that lover part of the psyche. They, 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 there's nothing that can ever bore you. You don't get bored when you're really in touch with the deep lover. Yes? You spoke just a couple minutes ago about the assumption, something about the objective self being final, or it wasn't clear to me what this assumption was. Well, I'm not sure what you have reference to. When I'm talking about the objective psyche, I'm talking about Jung's understanding that these things are not just ideas, that these are deep structures in the psyche that when you connect with them, there are observable effects on the ego. And uh, that if you're, if you're not consciously related to them, there are also observable effects on the ego. Mm. So uh, we'll come back to that. It'll probably come up again. Yes? Can you briefly define anima? Anima is used traditionally as, <clears throat> as the feminine side of a masculine personality. And uh, it's, it's really related to dream interpretation a lot, and in that, that you will see a man will dream, and there will be a lot of female figures in the dreams that are, represent individuals that he does not know. I mean, I mean there, there will be uh, dream figures. But, uh, <clears throat> but in Jung's own psychology, there, are, there is in the unconscious a very elaborate system of possibilities and experiences that make it possible for a man to relate to women. And one of the things you can think about, uh, if, you're not, if you're a man and you're not very well related to these aspects of the feminine in yourself, you won't be able to relate to them in women out there. You see this a lot. I work with a lot of men who will, like one young man said to me recently, in one of these conferences, he came up to me after one of the lectures, he said, tell me what to do. I've got to go deal with a warrior queen when I get home. I said, that's all right, son, we all do. But, uh, but, <laughs> What he's got to do is get comfortable with the warrior queen inside so that he knows that that's an energy he can relate to. He can deal with that. Why should a man not be able to deal with a warrior queen? What the, what's wrong? I mean, if it's, if, it's, if it's something that you're wired to understand, you ought to be able to deal with it. But the fact is, if that's never been a part of his own experiencing, so that he can love that part of the feminine, admire it, then it's going to be a tremendous difficulty for him. He's going to see, when he sees a woman in that role like Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, he's not going to know what to do with her. He'll be undone by that energy. And it's particularly going to be true if he is not really comfortable with his warrior. You know, if he's, if he's afraid, if he gets in touch with his warrior, he's going to kill somebody uh, without meaning to. That's what always is 
the issue. You know, it's not that you're going to kill somebody. It's going to kill somebody without really meaning to. Yeah. Part of that is the matter of one differentiated ego consciousness. It's not in relationship to that feminine side within himself. Absolutely. How can he be in relation to it outside? Absolutely. That's the way to think about it. Yeah. Can you say something on on uh, access? The whole last session, I'm going to spend focusing on accessing that. Uh, it has a great deal, let me just say a word about it. You've got to understand that for Jung, images are of key importance. In other words, talking these things to death will not put you in touch with the energy. It is what they used to call magic. In other words, if you really want to access these energies, go to the Art Institute and look at images. If you will look carefully at art history, you'll find images which evoke these patterns. And it does, it's a lot quicker to look at images. For example, if you want to get in touch with your warrior energy, get the film Patton and look at George C. Scott presenting you with an image of a warrior. And if you uh, there are a lot of men, I say, well, put that thing on automatic rerun and watch that movie again and again and again until you get some sense of patent in you. And you get some sense, you know, if you don't understand that the three rules of being a warrior are attack, 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 <laughs> then you need to watch that movie until you get the point. And it's not because there are any raps about warriors in that. It's images. It's images of Patton. Scott is good at presenting that stuff. In fact, if you've done as I've done and watched the newsreels of Patton and watched him closely, it's hard to tell the difference between Scott and real Patton. So that's what Scott did. So images are important. And this is very difficult for us because there are a lot of people in contemporary psychology today that are completely deaf with regard to this whole issue. They don't have a sense about the power of image. And it's amazing that, that, that that's gotten lost because for most of human history, you know, 99, 44, 100% of human history, they knew that you work with imagos, that it was images that were powerful. And that's why they outlawed so many of them. And, uh, but now we don't have enough people to understand that. So, for example, if you're a woman and you want to get in touch with the queen energy, you've got to find images of that, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the way we'll talk more about how you do that. And I'll talk a lot about active imagination as a technique. And if you're in a hurry, read Robert Johnson's book, Inner Work, in the section in there on active imagination. Yeah. Can you briefly describe each of those? Areas, what, what the pathology side of it would be? Uh, well, uh, I'd, I'd rather not tonight, uh, since that stuff's available on tape, uh, I can just briefly say a word about it. Then I want us to stretch our legs and come back, and I'm going to get a lot more into the King stuff because this is a course on the King, and, and I just did this so you can locate it briefly. Narcissistic tyrants. That is, in the one, you identify with the king and you become a, you become a Caligula tyrant. Uh, the other side is you just completely distance from it and you let somebody else carry that for you. Uh, that's 
abdication of your responsibilities in this area. This is the person that always passes the buck. Uh, and you see this, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, speculation in Washington this week about Bush. And the whole thing about Bush relates to whether or not he was able finally to have the buck stop with him and know what to do with it. Well, that's, that's, that's an issue, whether you, agree, whether you think about that or not. Uh, that would be, if you thought he was not able to, to handle the responsibility, that would be an abdication form of this. Uh, but if you want to study it, study the narcissistic personality disorder in the, in the DSM-3R. Shadow side of the warrior, uh, compulsive personalities in terms of workaholics uh, is one form it takes. <clears throat> what Milan called active independent personalities, antisocial personalities, who just soon kill you to look at you. Uh, you know, the, uh, the kind of personality which is constantly spoiling for fight, battering wives, etc., etc. Uh, pathology of the warrior is almost always related to uncontrollable rages, temper tantrums and uncontrollable rages. Uh, a kind of a passive form of that is, is your passive-aggressive personalities, you know, people who, who have very little connection with their own assertiveness, uh, who really can't fight for anything. Uh, pathology of the magician, schizoid qualities in the personality, distancing, detached, unable to feel, uh, college professors, <laughs> <laughs> professors tend to be into the shadow side of this thing, you know, I mean, uh, we, can, we can study it, we can talk about it, uh, you know, we can lecture on it, but when it comes to doing anything, we, we're suspicious anybody does anything. Uh, and what we do in philosophy and liter literary criticism, we become deconstructions. Because we can criticize everybody that ever constructed anything, and we can deconstruct everything. Uh, but. But in terms of ever building anything or really, uh, really taking a stance that we will argue for and construct, it's very difficult. Uh, I only half jest on that. Uh, pathology lover addictions, addictions, addictions. Uh, you see that writ large. Uh, Every kind of addiction from uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual addictions, all that sort of thing. It's all pathologies of the lover, and St. Augustine thought of it in the 4th century. Uh, and we can go on. That's all laid out in my tapes uh, on these uh, four things. And you can do, I, one of my projects I hope to work on for too long is get a bunch of, uh, get a bunch of people to work on particular diagnostic categories and showing the way in which these uh, archetypal configurations underlie different patterns in your diagnostic and statistical manuals, but uh, we don't have time. Other comments before we stretch our legs? Questions? Yeah. In this, in this model that you have, let's say I'm four spaces. Is it appropriate, let's say, if I'm at in one of those spaces, to reach for energy in another place? 
It's essential. If your ego is functioning, you can almost think about it this way. You know, if you're a psychotherapist, you tend to have a lot of problem about having too much of this. You know, if you're a psychotherapist or a psychologist, if it moves, you tend to interpret it. Uh, you don't lick it. You got me? You know, if you're a psychotherapist, you don't lick it unless you, unless you regress. You know, and all of a sudden, your neglected lover grabs you. But, uh, but if you're a psychotherapist, uh, you tend to interpret everything. And there's some of us that are so proud of that. You know, we, we like to think about ourselves as diagnosticians. You know, and we look, you know, we, we look at everything and we say, now is this a borderline with uh, so-and-so qualities or is this a so-and-so qualities with borderline feature? You know, I mean, uh, but you see, that's the psychotherapist. Most people don't interpret anything like enough. They're out of touch with this thing. And so in other, and there's a way in which you could even think that the more mature you get, you get enough of this magician stuff so that your inner Merlin can say to you, in effect, what you're saying. It says, <clears throat> hey, buddy, it's, it's time for you to get out of this space now. I mean, you have been at work 72 hours, you know, so forth. It's time for you to get some sleep. And uh, so you can kind of come to if, if you tend to be like me, and when you when I get tired and regress, <clears throat> I just work harder. If my own magician doesn't speak to me, I just end up working full time. I would just work all the time. And so, like what you're saying, if your if your inner wise man or wise woman is developed enough, they will talk to you about how you're spending your time and where. And it will be much more flexible and much more appropriate. Is there a point where I might have to reach for the warrior energy? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, you got to remember, archetypes, you don't want to be an archetype. You don't want to have the archetype have its way with you. That's the problem with archetypes, and Jung understood this. Archetypes, let me give you a little sense about what these things are like. They're imperialistic as hell. Each one of them wants all of you. Each one of them wants the whole personality. Each one of them, this is where Gene Bowden is right, they act like gods in the modern era. They want to possess you. And they don't want to be balanced, and they don't want to be sharing. They do not want to share your body. You got it? So, what, you know, the problem, individuation is such a nice, clean word, you know. I mean, individuation, we're going to individuate. <laughs> but what that means is, you have got to be get to the point where none of these archetypes archetypal entities is able to grab you and hold you against your will. You've got to be able to get to take a stand against all these things and yet not lose them. The problem is what we do, and Edinger points this out, what we tend to do is if an energy scares us, we try to forget we got it. Or if it's, if it's an energy that's disappointed us, we try to get away from it. 
And so you get all these men. And I talked about this in the warrior class. You get all these men who who were violent once. And it really frightened them. And so they really shut down their aggression. And they turn, try to be nice. And they try to try to get out of touch with that thing. And, and that's you can understand why a man would do that, but it's not the way to, to deal with it. So, so you've got this, this problem. It's an enormous task, individuation, because it means, essentially, that your ego gets strong enough so that it disidentifies with each of these archetypes. It disidentifies. You're no longer identified with it, but you don't lose connection. Now, that's a feat. And that's why it's hard. And that's why Jung said it was, individuation was a, such a moral struggle. He didn't mean pious or something. He meant that it was an incredible struggle to try to get, to take a stand against these things without losing their power. And that's, that's the goal, to take a stand with them, maintain your connection, but not lose, not lose the power or be run over by them. Numinosity. Let me say one word about numinosity before we take our break. It's an important word if you're going to have a chance to understand archetypes. The numinous. Read Otto's The Holy. The idea of the holy is the way it came out in translation. All archetypes functioning in the psyche in their archetypal essence are numinous. That is to say, they are loaded with power. When you connect with something archetypal, you know you connected with it because the energy is so powerful and it's frightening. That's why uh, if you want to really get a sense of the history of encounters with the archetypal energies, you have to study pre-modern culture when people still were encountering that and really working on dealing with it directly. That's why when we get to the, to the experience of the king in pre-modern societies, it'll help you understand that because it's hard to understand this now. If you haven't been with somebody in a manic psychotic state before they got medicated, it's hard for us today to understand numinosity. Unless you've been with somebody that is completely weirded out on crack, then you have a hard time understanding numinosity. But if you but if you've been around somebody that is really really freebasing cocaine, then you can have a little sense for what numinosity is, see? because it is incredibly high voltage, it is dominating, it's aggressive. It's always aggressive in some powerful way in that it takes over like a magnet takes over iron filings, and so. Uh, that's what it's so hard to get people to get a sense for. You know, archetypal, that sounds like such a nice word. Archetypal. We're going to have archetypal psychology, you know. Well, archetypes are not nice. They're more like earthquakes. And you don't fool around with them if you understand anything about them. You try to get to where you respect them, respect that energy, because you know if you get close to it, it's going to suck you right up there and you'll be dangling off of the archetype, you know, like this. So, uh... But they have a survival mechanism, too. 
Excuse me? They have a survival, they have a, they serve in survival. Absolutely. You, have, you, you must have them or you're going to be completely <coughs> de-energized. If you, if you see a person who's really lacking in enthusiasm, for example, or chronically depressed, it's a person who's not accessing this energy enough to even, you know, function. Uh, so it's very important for living. It's just that you don't want to be possessed by it because when it possesses you, you lose yourself, essentially. You lose your own sense of human self. And uh, you get your AK-47, you go down, and you shoot children. And you think you're a warrior. Yeah. yeah, it's a sensitive subject, what you just brought up. Yeah. Because um, unfortunately, um, if, you walk, if you're walking down the path in Vietnam, the guy, you're unarmed, uh, fiddling around catching butterflies or something. And that North Vietnamese raver comes walking up with his AK-47 slung around his shoulder. You do not outrun a 7.62 round. Absolutely. You see, so you have to give yourself over to that irrationality, that Absolutely. that irrational energy. Absolutely. And instead of running, you attack the guy and you use your body as a weapon. Now that means you may bite off his face, and then it's a matter of recovering that kind of sanity. That's different than the kind of guy who goes out and shoots kids. Absolutely, feels totally the different. pressure of being totally a scapegoat. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And, and he finally explodes in the irrational sense, yeah. just randomly. Right. And you don't. We don't even have to use a, a, an example like that. I mean, there are a lot of people who, in their everyday life, I just was with a, a, a person that's a, 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 a clergy person, and this person's in a situation where if he does not access this warrior stuff. His whole ministry is going to go down the tubes. I mean, it's quite clear. It's just as essential for him to be who he is to get in contact with this warrior stuff uh, as uh, as uh, the person in the more uh, desperate situation. So let's take five minutes. Come back. I want to get into the king much more deeply. I'd like you to get that uh, that movie, David the King. And I don't want you studying this stuff as cinema. It's lousy cinema, a lot of it, but uh, but it's important for helping you look at this these archetypes. Look at the king. Uh, David the king, of all people, Richard Gere playing David. Now, once you understand a lot about actually who David was, David the king, you should, if you can, study the biblical David a good person to study for this because in a way he shows all of the strengths and weaknesses of this of this archetype and if you study his relationship with Saul you really get the full shot uh, because uh, you get you really get the both both sides of the king stuff so but the movie treats that so if you look at the movie David the King, it will treat the relationship with Saul and David, and it'll treat David's struggles to be uh, to be an adequate king, uh, and it will be very useful to you to just look at and see this. Uh, later tonight, I will be talking about the specific qualities of Hebrew kingship as opposed to other forms. Uh, but uh, uh, so that's one. The other one. Uh, 
I'm, I'm serious about this, I want you to get the movie Camelot. And again, don't look at it as cinema, just look at it for archetypal structures. Because in that movie, the thing you should think about when you're looking at Camelot is what problems does author have with regard to this archetype? Because the whole movie is about author's problem with the king archetype and his not being able to relate to this very well. Not only that, not being able to relate to the lover archetype very well. Not being able to relate to the magician archetype. It's a real, just I want you to think about his, I want you to watch that movie and, and ask yourself the question, okay, you're going to be his shrink, you know. Uh, what what are his difficulties here, archetypally speaking? Uh, why is it that Lancelot is so able to come in there and uh, create the chaos that's, that's there? Uh, and just look at that, uh, you might want to, Look at the Excalibur movie, too. It's another version of that sort of thing. But uh, in terms of fairy tales, I'd like you to look at the one that Bly always emphasizes. He calls sometimes Iron John. It's Iron Hans in, uh, in the uh, Grimm's. Uh, and look particularly in that at the king imagery in that fairy tale. Now, Robert has, has done a lot of wonderful work with that fairy tale, but we could work with Iron Hans for 20 years and not, not you know, completely uh, finish it. So what I want you to do is look at the centrality of the king imagery in that fairy tale and look at the hiddenness of the king and look at the emergence of the king, uh, the redemption of the king, you might say, and the way the thing proceeds. Uh, so, uh, so look at that, uh, and uh, that ought to be enough little homework besides uh, uh, doing any reading that you can do. Okay. Now let me pick up talking about the uh, the king by prefacing it by saying there's no such thing as a secular king. You have to understand that kingship is a sacred phenomenon. There was this article in the New York Times recently. And they were talking about the cult of the royal family in England. And this writer was trying to speculate on why is it that you've got all this energy relating to the royal family in England when it's such a joke. See? They talk about all the little paraphernalia that's being sold about the royal family and everybody talks gossips about the royal family and all that sort of thing. Uh, if the writer, he did not, but if he had had any sense at all about archetypes, 
and the objective psyche, then he would not have been so completely helpless in the face of this phenomenon and trying to figure it out. He was totally helpless. It's in the last week, I think, uh, two weeks ago in New York Times, uh, uh, reviewing a book on the royal family. Uh, that's because even in a secularized modern Britain, they cannot completely get away from the power of the images of the royal family generate, generating these responses in the psyche. These are involuntary responses. When you're presented with the images uh, of the king and queen, they are psychotropic. They are psychoactive. They put us back in touch with what it used to be like before modernization and secularization, before we lost the sense for this. Kingship is always is sacral. It's sacred. It has to do with numinosity, that powerful energy uh, that I was talking about earlier. You see this most clearly when you study the oldest forms of kingship. That is, as history progresses, the numinosity of kingship gets less and less and less and less until you end up with uh, uh, contemporary uh, kings and queens. This book by Frankfurt, Kingship and the Gods, if you're seriously interested in studying this, uh, and until uh, John Perry's book gets back into print, Lord of the Four Quarters, uh, you want to look at this because it traces the history of this. We can start out <clears throat> with the more primitive forms of kingship. Uh, I recommend that you study Egyptian kingship and early forms of African kingship. I mean, there's an enormous literature on this. You would not know there is an such an enormous literature that exists on this. I have about a 90-page bibliography, 90 pages of bibliography on kingship. So there's an enormous amount of material that we have on this. It's just that people don't realize that it's a that it is a fertile field for understanding these deep structures. And so when you get into it, you, you, begin, to, you begin to learn these structures of kingship. Uh, Egyptian kingship. In Egyptian kingship, you can see that in the early times, the king is still identified as a god. See, there are stages, you might even say there's something like the three discernible stages. The... Uh, in the earliest forms, the king is clearly divine. In other words, the king is not a servant of God. The king is not a channel for the power of the God. The king is God. And, in, and is divine in every possible sense of that. This, this king in the earliest forms, the most primitive forms, you see where the where the human king is not understood as being human at all. <clears throat> you Christians who are interested in theology, all of that discussion about the history of Christology and the meaning of the Incarnation is a study in kingship. It should be understood in that way. It is a history of, uh, of ways of understanding sacral kingship, and most theologians don't have the slightest idea about that. But, uh, but in the early days, 
it's not a problem of fully God and fully man, like in the Chalcedonian Christological formulas. It's fully God. This is God. King is God. Earth exists because of him. Civilization exists because of him. Order and peace and justice exist because of him. You know, in, in, the, in this period where the French king said, I am the state, everybody thought that was kind of arrogant. You know? That's just sacral kingship. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a desiccated form of sacral kingship because the sacral king in the earliest form doesn't say, I am the state. He says, I am the world. There is no difference between king and cosmos in its essence. Now, the way that gets worked out in the, in the iconography is this is cosmos, and there are four quarters. It's quadrated. This is what John Perry showed. The throne is at the center. But it is because of the king's being that there is any order. In other words, you can't do what moderns try to do. This is what moderns try to do. We're going to have, this, we're going to have justice and peace. But we're going to take that out. And this is the modern fantasy. You're going to have justice with peace, but you're, not, you're going to not have anything that in the human psyche holds that together. You know that, that poetry about the center does not hold? You know, the, the, the illness of modernity is that the center does not hold. Well, who is the center that doesn't hold? It's the king, archetype, in, in essence. But if you see this so clearly when you study the primitive form. You study African kingship. Now, you might think, hey, it'd be great to be king. Why, in England, when you're a king, you get all so many thousands, hundred thousand pounds per year. You get to go around and ride the horse, you know. You get all the newspapers telling about your sexual failures and all these sorts of things. Uh, but what they don't understand when they're thinking about the benefits of kingship is that in the oldest forms, it was not liberating. It was totally imprisoning to be the king. In fact, in a great deal of ancient kingship, the more primitive you get, the less freedom the king has. And there, there are African kings who were kept in their compound their entire lives. They were never allowed to leave the compound. Their feet were never allowed to touch the ground. You know the idea of the, the, the royal carpet, the red carpet that they roll out? You know what the source of that is? The source of the red carpet is not what we think it is. The red carpet is rolled out to keep his majesty's feet from touching the ground. Why should he be kept from touching the ground? Because if he touches the ground, it's like he got grounded out. He loses his energy. Well, what happens if he loses his energy? Well, if the king loses his, his medicine, the American Indians would say, or the, the mana, the Polynesians would say, uh, if he loses his numinosity, we would say, 
then the world will run down. So you don't want him losing his charge. So you don't let him touch the ground. Not only that, there were a lot of primitive tribes in which the king was never allowed to see the sun. Somebody tell me, why would you not want your king seeing the sun? Competition. Your king has to be numinous and luminous. He's got to, he has got to be the sun. And they noticed, human beings are not totally stupid. They noticed that when the king sees the sun, it does not help him feel grandiose. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you live in Chicago on a day like today, you could go around saying, I am the sun, I am the sun. But if you're in Southern California, it might be harder, unless you're in L.A. <laughs> but it is very much that. The, the, the king has got to feel full. And when he's not full, he's, he turns into kind of a wounded fisher king, like we hear about in the legends, who's not got the power the kingdom needs. You know what they used to do? I want you to read a little of the Golden... You probably all got a copy of the Golden Bough. Fraser's Golden Bough. If you don't, it's in paperback. It's a study of most primitive forms of this. In the, in the primitive, most primitive tribes, if things started going bad and the crops didn't grow and, and the, uh, the herds didn't have a lot of uh, foals and other things, then they just killed the king. King for a day is not quite right. But ritual killing of kings was the common pattern because the king was essential for life to go on essential for creativity to flow we're going to get into these things about that function out of the king creativity flowing source of life and blessing is one of the main ones and in the more primitive tribes, they controlled the king totally. He had no freedom. They would kill him if it didn't work. And they'd make somebody else take the role. You, yeah? I, I don't know if it was a Yeah. Yeah. They were there. That's absolutely right. There were cultures in which it was so it was tied to the seasons and uh, even if things went well you got sacrificed one of the things I'll talk about is the relationship between kingship and sacrifice I'll try to get into that more next week there's no way to understand the concept of sacrifice itself in other words if you want to try to figure out the Catholic Mass that's about sacrifice and that's about kingship there is no way to understand the mass without understanding sacred kingship because when 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 Christ says this is my body this is my blood that's the sacral king talking because that is the way the sacral king always was in the most primitive forms uh, there are a lot of scholars that see Christian theology as a psychodynamic psychosocial regression back beyond uh, uh, Jewish theology 
psychodynamically it's absolutely true because as we'll see in a minute the Hebrew king was not that magical he was a steward of the power but he was not a, a channel of it and he was not the embodiment of it uh, and you see in Christian thought Christ is see the Messiah is a is a royal title see Messiah is about kingship and you can't understand all of this stuff about Jesus Christ if you don't understand this king archetype so all of that stuff about the cross of Christ being the place where life flows into the world and redemption flows into the world that's king archetype stuff you follow that okay so, in the most primitive form, the king was one with cosmos. He was, he was identified with the great cosmic tree. He was identified with the great cosmic stone. All the images of the primal center that create a world of order out of chaos was identified with the king. That was, he was order. He was source of creativity. He was the ever-flowing sacrifice. And he was the source of empowerment for the entire kingdom. See, he was this. He didn't channel it. See, you see it most clearly with the Pharaoh in its fullest forms. In the early Egyptian Pharaoh king. And in African kingship and in the primitive forms of kingship you see in uh, Fraser's Golden Bough. Yes? Monotheism, see that's an interesting study and you, you can get into that when you're, when you're looking at the changes in attitudes toward kingship which occur uh, with, for example, Akhenaten uh, in Egypt. Uh, and with the rise of uh, Mesopotamian kingship, which we'll get to in a minute, and, uh, and Hebrew kingship. It's very different. See, because if you get... See, it's like these primitive forms of kingship are much, much more primitive than any concepts of monotheism uh, at all. Because you're, it's more, it's, it, it is much more primal. You're talking about a being right here that is the king, that is all these qualities... And you're not into any kind of theological discussion about this. When you get developed theology, which gets into all that sort of thing, you're getting away from the power of the primal uh, force that this being is. Uh, you get myths. You've got myths. But you don't have theology like we know it today, which usually arises with monotheistic uh, uh, traditions. Uh, but anyway, Egypt... It's what you want to really study, the early pharaonic kind of uh, phenomena. When you move to Mesopotamia, you start getting these images of the king as not God, maybe divine in some ways, but more a channel for these blessings. He still carries enormous numinosity, and you see this also in the Roman emperor. And, and there's a tendency in Roman in Roman uh, tradition, you know, for.
for that to reemerge. You'll have a period of democracy, and then you'll have these these emperors come back who will get back into the cult of the emperor, the older cults of the emperor. So you can see how you can have a republic form, and then this, this thing will come back, and you'll get uh, emperors that take on uh, divine names and so forth again. But in they, but in Rome, for example. When they're identified with, with being God, it's, it's, it's a different kind of quality, even there. And you see this, uh, this more of an image of the channel. It's much more like Christian Christology stuff, you know. Jesus, you know, you, a lot of the time Christians will, will talk about, well, uh, in this incarnation, uh, Jesus is not Father. Jesus is not God the Father. God the Father's still king. But but Jesus sort of is the channel through which this flows to the world. And so there's there's a a sort of a there's a sort of a divinity in Jesus, but he's not the king. See? You see that clearly in, in, in the way Christians struggled with this stuff. Uh, but they, they weren't the first. There were a lot of struggles in the history of kingship laid out here in Frankfurt, in this kingship in the gods, where the king is no longer everything, but he has a special connection to the source. And it flows through him, and the people still idealize him. Today, in terms of psychoanalysis, we would talk a lot about the way in which the king carried the archetypal projections for the people. Uh, we, we talk about how the king carries the idealizing transferences for the people. Ronald Reagan. Yeah, right. Ronald Reagan carries the idealizing transferences. Uh, and that's the way you would understand Reagan worked this king archetype to the gill. I mean, he, he really utilized that in his, in his forms of leadership. People that don't understand this stuff trying to figure out why is it that this guy's Teflon you know he can do he can screw up everything but somehow it, when they throw shit at him it doesn't stick well do you understand this king archetype it functions like that see uh, you don't you don't war against the king you serve the king see? you don't criticize the king you, you try to get him to look at you. And if he looks at you and waves and smiles, uh, then you've been blessed. And we'll get into that a lot more next week about this blessing thing, see? And uh, those of you that are interested in Asian religions, all that stuff about the, the practice of darshan, the, the viewing of the guru, and the guru's look, the importance of the guru's looking at you, or those of you that have been to the Vatican, uh, and have, have been down there in the square when the Pope comes out. All that stuff is in, the, in this configuration of the importance of the, of the king looking and imparting a certain reality to you by looking at you. See? And that's what, that's what it's still, when you are still in this king as channel uh, form, it still had an effectance. It still had a power uh, that was magical in a way. 
and there's a sense in which when uh, when what we're wanting from what we're wanting from our fathers folks that we know that we do not get is a lot of that kind of uh, gaze when we look well it's the ground of mirroring what the what the cohesions and the self psychologists talk about with a poor choice of words as mirroring I think we have to say this blessing which is much more active what they talk about is mirroring is much more active it's it's a it's a constitutive act having something to do with the with recognition and it's, it matters who recognizes you get it if this being recognizes you 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 were created See? you get it when when that when that being looks he sees an animal in its name and we've got the garden of eden there's no chaos there there was nothing then i looked and i ran oh, that's, that's a giraffe and there's a giraffe the power of creating by the view by the vision and by the time it gets less archetypal in its human form and the king is a channel it's still immensely powerful it's still immensely powerful and you get these stories you read these old stories about the people when they come before the king even when the magical power of the king is much less later uh, they come before the king you see all this <clears throat> you see all these images about the people coming before the king and 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 waiting to be elevated by them by him to be to be lifted up in their power by his gaze and recognition uh, and it keeps on deteriorating after that I mean uh, but uh, but what we're looking for from our fathers is deeply grounded in that there's a certain what I would like to call a constitutive gaze that comes out of this configuration and uh, a real a really effective mentor is connected with this thing so that when that mentor looks at you there's a certain kind of act in the gaze and you can watch people who who have never had that kind of relationship with someone and they're looking for it and you'll see them going around looking for a mentor looking for somebody to look at them that way because nobody ever looked at them that way and it's what they're looking for is this is this kingly eye to look at them you can see you know the Egyptians made the emblem of the king what the eye of horse you will go down to the Oriental Institute and you want to see the emblem of the Pharaoh it's the eye of Horus why because it's the eye that's such a powerful eye it's an eye that creates if it sees you you're more real than before you were seen by it see? that's that's an that's incredibly important thing to understand if you don't understand anything else 
about this archetypal configuration, that is probably the most important thing to get. Because if you are, if you're anxiety-ridden, have a problem about your sense of identity, uh, and uh, and you uh, you feel like your father failed you, it is that I that you never had a never had a sense of being mediated to you. That I of blessing, credible with a capital B. All right, now this last one is what you get in Hebrew kingship. And then it gradually gets less and less powerful throughout the medieval period. And then with the beginning of the Reformation, with the beginning of the Reformation, you know, uh, you cut off the head of the king. If you you, you got to think about the significance of beheading the king. You've got to try to get an understanding about what happened when you chopped off the head of the king, wherever it's been done. And you've got to try to get a feeling for what's happening in human psyche and culture when you do that. Uh, so you, you get the movement, you get it through the Hebrew kingship, you get gradual decline in the archetypal power of the king through the medieval period, up to the Reformation, and then you start getting the beheading of kings, and then you get the French Revolution. Well, John Perry traces a lot of that. What you've really got, in my view, is an increasing capacity for humans to relate to the king within, and an increasing unwillingness to put that out there, because they've learned that, that human men make very bad kings. It is. Yes. One has to get to the point that one understands that human men and women must not have the projection of the king and queen. That must be something you do inside, because if you do not do it inside, you will disempower yourself, and you will get yourself into all kinds of sadomasochistic personal and social behavior. Yeah. Isn't that the, the French? Um, they may have beheaded the king, but they couldn't dis disidentify with uh, the nature of kingship, and that's their failure to disidentify is their failure in, in uh, grasping democracy. They always want to regress. Absolutely. You know, you know, it's one thing to cut off some man's head, and it's another thing to develop an ego self-access. See, and that's just like, it's one thing to disavow your father. It's quite another thing to do the inner work that's necessary for you to be able to reconcile with the father and let him be a human man. See, because, because our problems with fathers are that we, we, we expect them to carry this archetypal king and nobody ever carried it for them. So nobody ever helped the father deal with this issue, and he's not empowered to deal with it, so he can't help us with it, and we hate him for it, but that's where we're left. It's a, it's a similar problem in personal life as it is with, with, with the French in that situation. Yeah. Um, as you're talking about just the king archetype, I, can't, I, mean, I understand that, but I'm not sure I understand the 
understand we're talking about separately, but I keep seeing the support of the other archetypes. For example, David King is God. I keep thinking of the, the magician, the priest. Yep, absolutely. As we move down to King, it's absolutely. the dice kind of moving yep. to the warrior King. Absolutely. When you watch the movie about King David, you'll see what you're talking about. It's like, it's like the human person. Here's David struggling in a context in which the time David formed his kingship, kings had been totally, uh, they had a right to everything. You know, all this worry about, you know, in the, uh, in the tr Judeo-Christian tradition about David killing Uriah, having Uriah killed and, uh, and taking his wife. And a lot of people say, wow, that was really terrible, David, wow. What they don't understand is that in kingship, in that time, before the time of David, kings had all the women. You know, if you're the king, they're all yours. So the fact that David had got to the point that he could listen to his Merlin, his Merlin, named Nathan, criticize him about this and realize that he's misusing his power and that it is God, in effect, God is the true king. See, when you get the Hebrew kingship, the true king is Yahweh and the human king is a steward. And so the human king, when you get to uh, Hebrew kingship, you can see in the rise of Hebrew kingship an incredible move toward the disidentification with the archetype. You see that? Because the, because the Hebrew king, and those of you, you can study the way this works in terms of uh, studies of the Hebrew Bible, but the Hebrew king is not a law unto himself. He is responsible to Torah. The law stands as something he cannot be above. And when the Hebrew king tries to be above the law, then he will have his retribution. There will be, there will be a nemesis that will come against him. That's what the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, make this very clear time and again. It's a tremendously important moment in human history. Uh, and again, John Perry lays this out. Okay, so there is a movement throughout history. In the earliest times, you get the most purely archetypal. The king is everything in himself. And some of the forms... It is so potent that he's like a nuclear reactor. And you have to shield him from the people in a way you shield a nuclear reactor core. Gradually, he becomes less identified with the God. And you get, there is a heavenly king, Shiva, and you get the king on earth as a channel. And then later you get the, the rise of Hebrew kingship and forms like that in which in, in, in European medieval kingship, Christian kingship was like this too. The king is not this numinous thing so much himself as he is the deputy, the vicar, the steward of this power. Now what you should see in that, John Perry's right, you see a gradual formation of the human ego. 
in a capacity to disidentify with this archetype. What we see today in Poland and in China and other places around the world is a gradual continuation of an unwillingness to project this thing out. There is an increasing internalization. The hope for the human race is that increasingly uh, men and women, uh, but I agree with the feminists, men tend to be more the problem on this. I mean, we're the ones that love the firepower. So men have to let this thing come within and taking it off of the man out there, bringing it within, but what comes with that, what comes with the book also comes the responsibility the stewardship of those energies and those responsibilities. And that is the task uh, of our time. Uh, and for the first time uh, in human history, through Jung's psychology, we have a clear expression of the dynamics of the way this works. We have a way of looking at history and the way in which the power of this king has, has, gone, has gone from projection out here increasingly into a mature personality here. As it comes in, there's a formation of an inner relationship with this reality. The more immature you are, the more you will project it. The more mature you are, the more you will relate to it as a incredibly powerful structure within you. Now let me stop there and answer questions. We'll come back and next week I'll go through much more carefully these qualities that are in this archetype, not out there uh, in the Pharaoh, but are in your deep structures, yes. When you say that you're immature, the more immature you are, the more you project it? Does that mean you... The more immature you are, the more you project it. In other words... Elaborate on that. Okay. When you're a child, your father or some male in your environment carries that projection of this king. What a lot of people talk about as the father imago and all that stuff is not the father imago. It's the king. People have got to learn. Most Jungians do not know the difference. Most Jungians will talk about a father archetype. In my view, there is no father archetype. The king is the archetype. Human fathers are human beings. They're not archetypes. Fathers are not archetypes. This structure is the archetypal configuration that needs to be mediated as good enough to the child. But it is, a, it is a numinous archetypal quality that a human male can never adequately carry. Should not, you know, any, any mature male knows that other males at various stages of development may need to have him hold that for them for a while. But any mature man, and you study tribes, you can study maturity and, and masculine initiation throughout the world, Mature men, most of them existed before modernity, but mature men have always known that they hold that quality 
until the young man can begin to relate to it, begin to embody it more for himself. Uh, it's very interesting. It is in the pre-modern world that you see the most cooperation among men. Not in the modern world. In the modern world, because we don't understand this business, we either we either project the king, I'm either going to kiss your uh, certain aspects of your anatomy or expect you to kiss mine. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way it works with men in the modern world. Very little cooperation among men in the modern world. In the pre-modern world, among the Native Americans, among the African tribes, among the European pre-modern tribes, there was a great deal of cooperation between men uh, because they did not have this totally unregulated archetypal projection going on. They either had a chieftain that carried it a lot uh, or they had other rituals to deal with these energies. Yeah. But I think that's because the, the, there was less ambiguity who carried that model. You know, we make persons in the model of the modern world, and, uh, and, and the Montagnard uh, was a very primitive uh, tribal group. They made men and they made women, not persons. And I don't see it as being a masculine problem um, in the modern world as much as I see Absolutely. it as a feminine problem in producing male persons rather than men. Well, it's a, it's a problem for both. Because when you lost, when we lost in modernity with modernization, when we lost the capacity to think about initiation processes, then we <laughs> lost the capacity to think about what a mature woman would be or what a mature man would be. And when you don't think maturity as opposed to childhood, what you get is what's on TV. Just go home tonight and look at TV. And you'll see what you get when you lose a sense of any kind of understanding of what maturity is. And you lose that when you lose a sense of initiation. And so these, these potentials that used to be regulated ritually in pre-modern tribes, maybe not in a way you or I would like, but they understood they had to regulate it. Uh, today we don't do that well. What we've got to do is to help people reconnect with these things and to find rituals and context in which they can relate to these energies without being possessed by them. Uh, it's a tall order, but that's the task. In other words, if you're going, let me just close with this, and then we can chat a bit. But if you're going to find that kind of center of energy, of creativity, of order, that has embodied in it a concern for justice, peace with justice. All that peace with justice talk, it is grounded deep in this king and queen configuration. You cut off the head of the king and queen, archetypally speaking, you're not going to get any peace with justice. You will not get any peace with justice when you do not have a connection with these things because what you're going to have is warriors that have no one to serve. They become mercenaries. The minute you chop off the head of the king and the queen, what you get is mercenaries. You do not have true warriors because it is that deep center royal couple that contain the deep connection for just 
peace in the human psyche. If you understand this, then you get a little bit of understanding about why we have Kiana Quatsi now. You know, if you've seen that movie, the Hopi Indian idea of a completely chaotic and immoral time. We have a chaotic and immoral time because this particular archetypal potential is not something which we relate to well at all uh, in modernity. It's one that's the hardest to do. Uh, and, and once you understand what happens, we'll go into this when we talk about the pathology, when you don't have a connection with this, your sense of purpose and meaning for your life is shot. Because if you can't connect with that, you've got all these other energies and no sense of what a cosmos would be. In other words, you've got all this, you've got all this loving energy, you've got all this interest in knowledge, you've got all this firepower, and you have absolutely no, nobody's given you a program in your computer for a world. There is no sense of world. And so what do you get in modernity? You get what we've got today. How many people do you know that give a damn about the world? That really are interested in channeling this energy into, in, into creating a civilization, planetary civilization. It's very hard to find anybody that's deadly serious about planetary civilization on any front. It's hard to find religious leaders that give a damn really about what's happening to the children in the city of Chicago see because they can't there's no vision there's no vision of a world of world cosmos as opposed to chaos we just assume chaos is normative see think of how many people you know that just sort of assume that it has to be this way and when you ask them about that they just think don't you understand this is just the way it is that comes from being cut off from these deep structures. Because when you're plugged in to those deep structures, you can think cosmos. Now, there are some people that can do that. There are a bunch of uh, eco-freak rainbow warriors out there who are serious about the planet. Some of them, there are people that risk their lives for the planet now and not just for some particular party, not just for some particular ideology. There are a few, but there need to be a lot more, and it has to be some deep connection. Yeah, let me open it up, we'll we'll take a few more minutes, then we'll go, yeah. So in America, everybody's kidding. You must know different Americans than I know. <laughs> Unless you're talking about narcissistic personality disorders. If you're talking about if you're talking about shadow kings, uh, I know a lot of folks that uh, that uh, are narcissistic personality disorders. Uh, what do you mean? Well, I mean that we're all supposed to believe in uh, the American uh, competition, but really nobody believes in it. But she should believe it as a kind of monopolistic mentality. Monopolistic mentality. There's a certain imperialism to that. Well, but you see, the thing about this archetype in everybody, it's, it's the archetype when it comes out on the shadow side of greed. It's the Midas touch. Well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, but king in in a sort of a shadow expression. That is to say, the human starts acting as if they have a right to everything. Uh, I have a right to buy out American Airlines even if it destroys the company, even if it, even if it uh, uh, devastates all sorts of things. I mean, this whole, we could talk about that, and we talk about that a lot, but I mean, the capacity to, to act out of a sort of a tyrannical power drive without any concern for ethics or for civilization uh, is widespread. We see a lot of this king archetype, absolutely. But we see it in its shadow forms. We see it in its forms where people uh, identify with it in this uh, in this in this narcissistic way that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but that sort of that sort of wholeness. In the long run, we assume relative relativity. Well, you know, I see it in service of long run wholeness. That that imperialistic move is to is to take what power you feel and extend power until you reach some power that's equal to your own you can't extend anymore. In other words, you're filling a void. Well, there, there, are certainly, there are certainly political theories that try to under, try to put that into some sort of context, Milton Friedman and all sorts of other people. But, but what I'm talking about in terms of this is, is a psychological factor. I mean, it, it depends on the individual person. I mean, there could be somebody whose ideology was such that they could come up with some de defense of uh, all sorts of forms of economic organization. What I'm talking about is the personality who feels, as in the description in the DSM-3, entitled to everything and has no capacity to love, no capacity to feel, no capacity to think of the other as an independent center of initiative that deserves respect, so forth and so on. So that's, that's a different thing. I'm talking about the psychology. I don't want to get into raps on the political theories. Yeah. Would you say a lot of things that relate to the Absolutely. You can be, the important thing to realize, though, this is where the Freudians could stand a little study of Jungian materials. You can be infantilely grandiose in each of these. Uh, they tend to identify the narcissistic personality disorder with this, with this kind of form it takes. But uh, when you really get into the way infantile grandiosity works, when you identify with the archetypes, yeah, they express themselves in any of these forms. The one we're concerned about is the, uh, the, uh, the one in which the individual starts identifying with this or projecting it, completely shunning it. You find, you find more people, in fact, you know, it's more interesting to deal with somebody that thinks they're the king. It's less boring. If you get somebody, though, that you're working with, a dependent personality type, of which there are a lot of men that are dependent person. It's not all women like some people want to say. Uh, the dependent personality type completely abdicates. They want somebody else to carry the king for them. And they'll usually find somebody that volunteers to carry it for them. 
So you can see this pathology of this all sorts of places. The important thing uh, that we're talking about in this course is that in a mature personality, this has got to be an internal relationship. Uh, you show me someone who feels disempowered in the presence of any authority figure. I'll show you somebody that has not developed an ego-self-axis relationship with this archetype. In other words, if when you go in to talk to your boss or to your dean or so forth and so on, and you feel your power disappearing when you go in the room, it is because of an unconscious projection of this thing. Uh, and the only way to cure it is to have such a powerful internal connection with it that when you're with somebody that happens to have some social authority, you do not find yourself unconsciously being disempowered in their presence. See? It happens if you have to take examinations. This kind of thing happens when you have to take an exam of any kind. You know, there are a lot of people that I coach before their exams. Say, get this stuff worked out. Don't be giving your king to those examiners. Do you're going to get hurt. Okay, our time was up quite a long time ago. Let's stop now. I'll stick around. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org. Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Farah Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie Cape, Brian, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Pop, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.